us to Zechariah chapter 13. Now we're in the final two chapters of our series on minor prophets and I have found this series to be so encouraging because it highlights God's grace and His mercy to those who certainly are undeserving, which would include us all. As we come to Zechariah chapter 13, we find the passage of Scripture talk about a redirect for Israel, the people of God. Up to Zechariah's time, Israel had been missing the mark as far as focusing on God. They became so easily distracted. They would often look to other gods, to other political entities to develop them. They just couldn't stay focused on God. We can all relate to that. Isn't it easy to get distracted? Isn't it easy to take our focus off of the one who is most important, and that is the Lord? But here in Zechariah chapter 13... Zechariah speaks of getting right with God. For the children of Israel, that would mean that they would repent, that they would turn away from their idols, turn away from the false teachings that they had followed, and that they would start to focus on God and God alone. He would become the focal point of their lives, and that's what we want to see today as we get into this chapter. Now, one of the most beautiful passages, I think, in the Old Testament was in the 12th chapter, where Zechariah spoke of the children of Israel turning to God. And in that 10th verse, it says, they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. That's the repentance that takes place, where they had been turning away from Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. As a people, they will turn to Him and see Him for who He is. You know, this is important not only for the people of Zechariah's day and for the people of this prophecy, but it's important for us all to understand that in order to have the right relationship with God, in other words, in order to get right with God, we have to have the right view of His Son. For the children of Israel, there was a dismissal of him being Messiah, and there is to this day. But there is coming a time when Jesus returns, when these children of Israel, these people will focus on Jesus for who he is, the one that they have pierced, but the one who is coming again to establish his kingdom on earth and reestablish a right relationship with him. And where God wants that for His people. God wants that for all of us, to have that right relationship with Him, that connection with Him that comes through the work of Jesus Christ. So as we come to this text, we find that Zechariah begins by talking about a course correction for God's people. And he talks about how they are cleansed from sin and impurity. Look at this 13th chapter, the first verse. And notice it says this, On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Now this is another one of those classic passages in Zechariah. 
that gives us a perspective on God's desire to forgive. When this scripture talks about a fountain being opened to bring restoration, to cleanse the people of God from sin, it's talking about the open access that they will have and even that we have to forgiveness because of this fountain. Now we might ask, what does he refer to when he refers to a fountain? And I think the answer to that is simple. It is the fountain of Christ's blood. Jesus Christ cleanses us from sin. The scripture is crystal clear about this. William Cowper in his hymn, There is a Fountain, wrote the following. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Isn't that a beautiful truth? The fountain of Christ's blood cleanses us from sin and impurity. And when the scripture talks about sin and impurity, I think it's referring to not only sin itself, that is stepping outside the moral boundaries that God has established, but also the impurity that sin leads to. Impurity refers to the conduct, the outcome of sin, if you will that we lead lives that are separated from God, not connecting with God when we lead lives of impurity. So here is God's solution. If man has sin, and if his sin leads him to a conduct that makes him impure before a holy God, God has a solution. And that solution is and continues to be the blood of Jesus Christ. That cleanses us from every sin. In a little while, we will share in the Lord's table. Part of what we remember in the Lord's table is the blood of Jesus Christ represented by the cup. So as we partake of that today, it's a reflection on the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. The Scripture wants us to remember that's what God has provided for you and for me. John wrote the following, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And look at this. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and will purify us from all unrighteousness. That sin that stands as a barrier between us and God is removed by the blood of Jesus Christ and by faith our confessing that sin to God. In other words, agreeing with God that this is sin. He cleanses us from that sin and purifies our impurity. That's the promise of Scripture and that's the fountain that is made available that Zechariah refers to in this text. But then the text goes on. In Zechariah's day, a very real problem that had existed in Israel since its formation with Abraham was their propensity to go away from the things of God and to turn aside to idols. Now, in our day, we have our idols, but in their day, these were actual little pieces of stone and wood and precious metal 
that they would carve out and shape and form for themselves. And in our society, we would look at that and say, why would anybody worship something that they've created themselves? It's hard for us to grasp how a person could pray to a little piece of wood or a little piece of stone or a little piece of metal of some sort. How could that be? But here's what we must understand. In the day in which idols were worshipped, that was the standard. That was the status quo. That's what everybody around us would have been doing. Isn't it easy to buy in to the current thought process, the current ism of the day? It's very easy for us to want to be like the people around us. Historically, when we look at Israel throughout its history, that's exactly what they did. They wanted to be like the nations around them. They wanted to fit in. That was their goal. That was their desire. So because the nations around them would worship idols, they would worship idols too. They bought in to the surrounding thought of the day. Now here's the problem with the thought of a day. People are wrong. At one time, people believed that the earth was flat. If you were to say, no, the earth is spherical, they would have laughed you out of the room. They would have said, that's a ridiculous concept. Everybody knows that it's flat. You're an idiot if you think that it's spherical. What do we discover? Everybody was wrong. We can't base truth on the popular concept of the day. Truth is revealed by God Almighty. And he's the one that we find our truth in. He's the one that tells us what is right and what is wrong. So, as we progress in this text, we come to verse 2. And we find that when Jesus returns, when Israel looks upon him whom they have pierced, and he comes and he establishes his kingdom on earth, there will be no place for idols in the land any longer. Verse 2 says, on that day. Now, we know on that day refers back to what was being talked about in chapter 12, and that is the return of Jesus Christ and Him taking the throne of the earth, becoming the ruler of the earth. And it says here, on that day I will banish the names of the idols from the land, and they will be remembered no more. Idolatry will become a thing of the past. Now, for Zechariah and his audience, the idea of idols becoming a thing of the past was stark. It was startling. Everybody around them worshipped idols. Israel was a little sliver carved out in a world full of idolatry. The concept that there will come a day when everyone will believe the truth that God has revealed must have been amazing to them. Today, we have our idols as well. Money, prestige, many thought processes that people have as far as having a me-centered viewpoint. We become idols to ourselves. 
So we still have the problem of idolatry. The Scripture even tells us in the last days, after the church has been raptured and it has been caught up into heaven with Jesus, idolatry will become something that is rampant throughout the world as people worship an idol created by the Antichrist. So idolatry throughout the history of man has been a perpetual problem, but here the Word of God is saying on that day when Christ returns, when He establishes His kingdom on earth, idolatry will not be the norm. And it's a promise that we can cling to. Buying into the idols of this world is selling ourselves short. Buying into the thought processes of the immediate is selling ourselves short. We need to look to the revelation of God because that's what lasts. Those are the promises that find fulfillment. So here is the Word of God, and it's telling us that God will banish the idols from the land, and they will be remembered no more. Nobody will even think or talk about these idols. Look at what else it says. I will remove both prophets and the spirit of impurity from the land. Those who perpetuate idolatry, the prophets who tell others to follow their God, they will be stopped. They will no longer perpetuate those lies. The Scripture is crystal clear that He will remove the prophets. In other words, God will see to stopping the prophets from their confusion, but also he will remove the spirit of impurity. Now, some commentators, and I would agree with them, see this reference to spirit of impurity as not an attitude of impurity, but as actual spiritual forces behind idolatry, spiritual forces that would draw people away from God toward other things in order to rob them of a connection with God. Here the Word of God is saying that Jesus is going to stop that. He's going to see to these prophets stopping what they have done. And then look at verse 3. And if another still prophesies, his father and mother to whom he was born will say to him, you must die because you have told lies in the Lord's name. When he prophesies, his own parents will stab him. Now, when we read this, it's unsettling, isn't it? When we read this, it sounds like, gosh, isn't that sort of like an Islamic terrorist, you know, doing that to their dissenters? But understand the difference that is in this text. Number one, when Jesus Christ returns, everyone will see him for who he is. There's no doubt. There's no question about who Jesus is. So somebody who is spewing falsehood about who Jesus is is doing great harm to themselves and to the community around them. They will see Jesus appearing right before them. They will see him for who he is and to mislead and delude people is a wicked thing. 
When we look at traitors to our country, we look at them and we say they must be stopped and they must be punished. What about a traitor to someone's eternal destiny? What about a person who brings another person into a place of confusion and rejection of Jesus Christ? What the Scripture is saying is this, God will not tolerate it, and the family relationships will not be as strong as the relationship with the Lord. Their instinct, their desire will be, I will serve the Lord, even if it means rejecting a family member who would lead people away from Him. Remember, this is a different time where people will see evidence, truth, that Jesus is who He says that He is. Look at verse 4. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his prophetic vision. He will not put on a prophet's garment of hair in order to deceive. He will not say, I am a prophet, I am a farmer. The land has been my livelihood since my youth. If someone says, what are the wounds on your body? He will answer, the wounds I was given at the house of my friends. Now, this is a little hard to understand because we're not understanding perhaps some of the imagery of what's going on. So let's check this out together. When this passage talks about a prophet coming and wearing prophetic clothing... Notice I said prophetic, not pathetic clothing. The idea is this. Prophetic clothing was a way of identifying oneself as a spokesman for God. These garments were often unique so that when somebody looked at the clothing of of a prophet, they they thought, here's a holy man. Here's a, a spokesman. This is somebody that I should listen to. What the Word of God is telling us is there will come a time where Prophets won't be going about wearing those things, speaking lies. They will be ashamed to do so, and here's why. God has wiped out their support group. They are no longer the ones who are in the majority. They are now in the super minority, and God will not tolerate the harm that they do to the people of God. Something else. When it talks about wounds on them, we wonder, what is it talking about when the Scripture mentions wounds? In the day in which Zechariah lived, many of the pagan prophets would actually take knives and cut themselves in order to get the attention of their gods. We find this in a contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And if you remember, he took... Uh, the, the prophets of Baal took knives and they were spinning around and chanting and they were actually taking knives and they were cutting themselves to get the attention of their gods. What the Word of God is saying is this will go on no more. It is a poetic way of expressing that, hey, prophecy that does not focus on the truth and on God will be no more. It will stop. All of this is talking about Viewpoints, outlooks, who have taken people away from God. But understand this, a time is coming and will be right before all of this takes place when Christ returns to establish His kingdom on earth where idolatry will grow worse, not better. In the book of Revelation, there is a warning concerning the prophecy that we will encounter. 
For some reason, there we go. Thank y'all. I needed to change my position for my clicker. But let's look at this passage of Scripture. Revelation chapter 19, verse 20 says this. The beast was captured, and with him the false prophet. Now, we were just talking about prophets moments ago. Just before Christ returns, there is a figure who is going to come on the scene of human history, and he is called the false prophet. The false prophet will take everyone and point them toward the Antichrist who misleads the entire world. Now, the prophet, this false prophet, performed miraculous signs on behalf of the beast. And with this sign, these signs, he deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Here's the idea. The false prophet, who is the ultimate false prophet, is going to be dispatched, stopped at Christ's return. This will not be tolerated. It will not be allowed after the return of Jesus Christ. Again, in the 20th chapter of Revelation, he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. Not only will you have false prophets stymied, but Satan himself will be bound during the reign of Christ for a thousand years here on earth. So this promise that is being given to Israel is a promise of hope. That false prophecy will be laid aside. They will no longer have to deal with the corrupting influence of it when Christ establishes his kingdom on earth. But then, as we come to verse 7, we find that Zechariah shifts his discussion. And there he talks about the chosen shepherd who is the one responsible for our cleansing. So here's the structure of the 13th chapter. There is a fountain that cleanses us from sin. There are those who would take us and misguide us and lead us away from the fountain. The fountain, from Zechariah's standpoint, is coming. And he will be the Messiah, the shepherd, the promised one. His message to the people of his day, look back to what has been promised and look forward to the fulfillment that will come. From our perspective, we look back to that partial fulfillment that we celebrate with Christmas. Jesus Christ came to live among us, to die on the cross, to become that fountain, but we also look forward to Christ coming again, to establish His kingdom on earth, to fulfill the promises of God. And just as it was fulfilled by Christ's first advent, so these promises will be fulfilled by his second advent. Just as people doubted whether or not he would come at the first advent, there are doubters that wonder whether he's going to come again. But God is faithful. As we celebrate Christ's coming the first time with Christmas, we look forward to Christ's coming again. So look at what 7 says. Verse 7 says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. 
against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered and I will turn my hand against the little ones. What we find in verse 7 is a glimpse into God's plan for the coming Messiah. The coming Messiah will establish his kingdom on earth, but first he must experience suffering. He must have the sword turned against him. Now what Zechariah means by that is this truth. There is a suffering Messiah. For many of the Jews in Jesus' day, they thought of the Messiah as this political deliverer because, as we've been reading Zechariah, isn't there a lot of promise concerning a Messiah who would come and establish his kingdom on earth and protect them from all that were against them? So with selective hearing, they chose the passages that talked about the political deliverer. But sandwiched in every passage that talks about Jesus being the political deliverer is the concept of a suffering Messiah. So God knew that in his plan to have Jesus return and establish his kingdom on earth, that plan also includes the Messiah suffering. And so when it says in this text, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, The scripture is referring to what Jesus would do to secure not political salvation for his people, but spiritual salvation for us all, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In poetic language, awake, O sword, is a way of the prophet saying violence will come upon this special shepherd, the Messiah, the one we know as Jesus Christ. Listen, Christ's coming in the first advent, Christmas, wasn't an accident. It wasn't an afterthought. It was a part of God's eternal plan for the salvation of man. It wasn't God looking and saying, oops, I better do something about this sin thing. It was God purposing, planning, to send Jesus into this world to live among us after having been born into this world and ultimately go to the cross to die for us. The prophet Isaiah says this, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. That's God's purpose. That's God's plan. That's why the sword would be raised against Jesus Christ. And we know that it wasn't a sword, it was a cross. But this is poetic language that's expressing violence. Paul said this in the book of Galatians. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Again, not an afterthought. When the time was right, God sent Jesus the first time 
to be born of a woman, to live among us, to become our Redeemer, meaning He died on the cross to buy us out of sin and separation. But we also have the promise that this will be completed at Jesus' return. And just as this came at the right time, Jesus' return will come at the right time as well. Now, the part of the passage where it says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I think there are three aspects to this that we need to look at. Number one, Jesus identifies this as referring to the dispersal of his disciples. In Matthew chapter 26, it says this, Then Jesus told them, This very night you will fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Jesus is directly quoting from Zechariah. And what he was warning his disciples about was this, Look, I'm about to go and be crucified And it's going to scare you, and you're going to go in separate directions. You're going to flee. You're going to scatter. That was a partial fulfillment of this prophecy. But it means so much more. You see, a few years later, there would be an invasion by the Romans after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And when Titus came into Rome in 70 AD, there was a scattering of the people of Israel stark fulfillment of this prophecy. But there's an event that is even yet to come. And that is during the time of the tribulation there will be persecution of the children of Israel. Now chapter 12 focuses in on the last moments of that persecution when the remnant is delivered. But before that, the people of God will suffer terrible persecution from the Antichrist. And they will scatter. They will go from the area only to be regathered as a remnant. And that is in part what is being referred to in this text as well. So there are three separate passages or thoughts, events in history that talk about this. As a matter of fact, the writer, John, of Revelation, talks about this last scattering that I was referring to. In verse 13 of chapter 12, the dragon, who we know refers to Satan, the dragon saw that he had been hurled to earth. He pursued the woman. The woman in this passage is symbolic of Israel. He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. And the woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Now, this prophetic language can sound very confusing, but basically what it's stating to us is this. Israel will be persecuted by Satan, and for three and a half years, they will scatter and many will be holed up in a place of special protection by God. God will see the preservation of His people. So here, the Word of God is telling us about this prophetically, and it's a case that is built throughout the pages of Scripture. This isn't an isolated text. It is a glimpse 
into what is happening in the future. And it is a glimpse that we need to take seriously. Look at the eighth verse. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. Do you know what the text is saying in that? When the Antichrist pursues Israel, during this time of tribulation, when the persecution mounts against the people of God, and Satan ratchets up that persecution. By the way, why does Satan persecute the Jew? Because they are God's people. God loves them. Satan hates what God loves and loves what God hates. So they will experience this terrible persecution. And what the Word of God tells us in this text is that two-thirds of them will die. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm a Jew in Zechariah's day and I'm reading this, I'm like, yikes. Two-thirds of the people gone because of the persecution that they will face? I don't want to be in that number. But what we do find is, verse 9 reminds us of something else. The third I will bring into the fire, I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. What God is doing with His people is purging the faithless and refining the faithful. The one-third remnant that is left after going through the fire of persecution will come through it strong and ready to receive the Lord. Do you know what the refining process is? When you take gold or you take silver in the days in which this was written, you would put it in a smelter, a pot, and you would heat the pot. And as the ore was heated, impurities would come up to the surface. The gold or the silver were heavier than the impurities. So they would float on top and the refiner would take an instrument and scrape off the impurities. And it was a process that was done by eye. And basically, when the refiner could see his reflection in the molten metal, then he knew that the process was complete. When there are dark impurities, he's not going to see his reflection. But when it was pure, it would be like a mirror. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what God does with people? When we go through trials and difficulties and struggles, it's the refiner's fire working in us that we might reflect the creator, the refiner, God. So for the children of Israel, many of them are going to go through difficult times. This is a warning to them that this will come. But after the end of that process, look at the closing thoughts of this passage. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. There's comfort for those who are refined. That pure and deep relationship with the Lord is promised 
They will look upon him whom they have pierced, and they will grieve their rejection. They will call on his name, and there will be relationship. They will be able to communicate with God. And look at this last statement. I will say they are my people. They will say the Lord is our God. This has been God's passion, his desire for the people of God since they were first called to be the people of God. And listen, it's the desire of God for us today. God created us to know him. All of the rejection of God and following other distractions are of man's doing, not God's. That's sin. But God has made a way for us to experience forgiveness and a relationship with Him. Now, we've seen it isolated to the children of Israel in this passage. But it expands to all people, this grace of God. I don't know where you stand in your relationship with God this morning. But I do know this. If you are not right with God, if you do not have a relationship with Him, God has made a way for you to experience eternal life and a relationship with the Father. And that is through the fountain of Christ's blood. What is required of us is what was required of the children of Israel to see Jesus for who He is, our Savior, the one who died on the cross for our sins. The one that I am to turn to away from the other things that occupy my heart like sin. I can turn to God and I can embrace Jesus as God's provision so that I can be one of his people and he can be my God. God makes that way open to any. So this morning, if you haven't placed your personal faith in the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross forgive you of your sin, to open the way for you to experience forgiveness and a relationship with the Father. You can do it by faith, claiming what God freely offers. I would encourage you this morning. Trust God's provision. Receive what God freely offers. If you would like to talk about that at the conclusion of the service, I'll be around. TJ would love the chance to talk with you. Dan would love the chance to talk with you. Speak with any one of us, and we would be happy to talk with you about how you can know that he is your God and that you are his people. I encourage you to pursue that today.